This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Firstly, thank you to the tens of thousands of you who downloaded the podcast over Christmas and New Year, catapulting us up the iTunes tart and reaching even more listeners. You can help us do the same this week. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast and why not post a review as well, telling us what you like, what you don't, and most importantly, what you'd like us to talk about in future episodes. If you don't yet subscribe to The Times and get my morning Red Box email, now is your chance. We've got a sale on. Become a digital subscriber for just £1 a month for your first three months. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Right, that's all of the corporate messages done. Let's get on to this week and making a drama out of a Brexit crisis. This week has seen the airing of Channel 4's Brexit on Civil War, a drama going behind the scenes of the EU referendum campaign in 2016. We're joined by the writer James Graham, who is also responsible for West End hits like This House, Inc. and Labour of Love, to discuss turning recent history into entertainment. Also on the panel is Nikki DeCosta until November, who is Theresa May's Director of Legislative Affairs in Number 10, charged with trying to get Brexit through Parliament. We'll discuss what real-life drama lies ahead. But first, Kieran Hodgson is an actor and comedian, nominated three times for the Edinburgh Comedy Award, but he's also a self-confessed political history nerd. And his latest show, 75, just starting a month-long run at the Soho Theatre, indulges his fascination for the lively world of 1970 politics, in particular the dramatic story of how the UK joined Europe in the first place. This is Kieran Hodgson. So when you write a comedy show for the Edinburgh Fringe these days, uh, it's considered good manners to have a theme or a story or some sort of personal trauma to talk about. Um, I know, like a breakup having a kid, um, a graphic journey of sexual self-discovery. Mercifully, I've never had any of those things happen to me. So uh, for my gimmick this year, I fell back on my, uh, as you say, obsession with 1970s British politics, um, which is just as emotional for me. And in particular, the story of how we got into Europe as a means of understanding why we're now getting out of it. Um, The show is called, as you say, 75, and it's packed with razor-sharp observations about politicians who've all been dead for at least 10 years. (laughs) Now, Chrissy, Kieran, you're you're a fresh-faced young man. Were you even born? (laughs) I shaved this morning. (laughs) You presumably weren't even born when this this was happening? Nope. No. Not at all. And I thought I might consult my parents and, and friends of their generation for advice about it, and they were totally useless because I I sort of said to a gathering of them, 
you know, what what do you remember about, you know, when Ted Heath was prime minister? And they said, oh, no idea. When was that? Probably in the bar. <laughs> you know, I think they were, my parents were all about sort of in their 20s during this period and uh, paid very little attention to it. Um, so, so I couldn't draw on them for help either. So what do you do then? So you've, you've decided that you... Did you know a bit about it and that was why you decided to do a show or was it a completely blank canvas and you had to go in and sort of fill the gaps? I did uh, know quite a bit about it and it, it had been an area of history that I had for a long time been drawn to. I think partly because... There are um, two interpretations of the 70s, I think. There's that line in Austin Powers 2 where... <laughs> this um, might be the first time anybody's ever quoted that film on this podcast. Where Felicity Shagwell, who's from the 60s, says, oh, well, I'm from the 60s and now I'm in the 90s, but I want to go back and I feel like I've missed the 70s and the 80s because they do a bit of time travel. And uh, Austin Powers something says something like, Oh, there was a power cut and a seagull on a wall, and that's about it. Something like <laughs> something like that. And so there's one interpretation of the seventies, which is dreary, boring, horrible, and then the other, which is that the seventies were this unbridled catastrophe, this Weimar-esque period, from which we were all mercifully rescued by um, by Thatcher. And somewhere between those two is is the real seventies, and I'd long since wanted to uh well I'd long since been drawn to it and by the the personalities of it I tend to do my shows about things I care about and so I want to do a show about this but it's a really tough sell uh <laughs> well, that, for a that was going to be my that was hence, my next question hence the Europe thing yeah which is the way in which is the way of making it um I think something that that um people these days can understand why you would want to look at the 70s and, and so yeah in in the show I have this conceit i suppose you would call it that in order to to work out why why in particular the brexit referendum was so divisive not necessarily you know why one result won out but why was it so um divisive and 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 kind of nasty um finding that out and going back to the very beginning of it and seeing if there are any any aspects of the journey into europe that can help us understand so that's the conceit of the show but it's mainly an excuse for me to do all my impressions of roy jenkins and so forth which i've been this is the other thing you do a lot of preparing for years you do do a lot of impressions of politicians that some people might not necessarily recall yes uh but they're good (laughs) well well, (laughs) this is the thing no one can say um yeah it's uh that that is quite fun is that there's there's far less uh, pressure on the impressions because you, most people don't know what they sound like. And it was a challenge. I think when you do an impression as a comedian, like occasionally I do things on Radio 4, and you usually get the laugh of recognition. You know, if you do your Jacob Rees-Mogg, there's a laugh when everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's it, you got it. And if people don't know who they sound like, you don't get that. Um, so you have to um embrace the challenge of making them funny people in and of themselves regardless of whether uh, the audience has any knowledge of them so you have to find uh, you have to make Roy Jenkins or Enoch Powell a fun person for the audience <laughs> to be with for a couple of minutes if they've never heard their name before and I, I quite liked that actually it, it stopped me being lazy and it stops you falling back on easy tricks on easy laughs I suppose you know once upon a time if you were doing Roy Jenkins everyone would have known that he couldn't say his R's and so you could just go oh I'm Y and I'm you know this is uh, I can't even think of words beginning with an R now Um, (laughs) ridiculous and so forth people don't know that anymore so you have to find other things to make people laugh about him and and focus on the content rather than simply on the presentation now, James um, one of your biggest probably biggest political shows was or play was 
this house. A similar sort of thing, and it was yeah. based in the 70s. It was, yeah. In the Whip's office in the House of Parliament, a sort of again quite a sort of techie location to yeah. place to play. What made you choose that as a as a place to set a political play? Uh, well, like uh, Kieran, I wasn't born at the time, but I feel like I've spent a lot of time there in my mind and in my soul. <laughs> That's exactly um, and I, I I feel like the seventies are a gift for a dramatist. I think it was David Mamet who said that all great drama happens at the crossroads, and it feels like the seventies was leading to a decision. I always think of the seventies a bit like the Star Wars prequels, and that no one enjoys them, and they look a bit crap but they are the origin story everyone knows the death star gets built uh, it's and you plot you get to plot through hindsight how it happened so for me it's about we were leading towards a point in 1979 where the nation had to decide was it going to go this way or was it going to go that way and that's just, and then everything that happened afterwards i think you can you can draw from that does it help in a way having that sort of distance that you're in a way trying to because you did this house soon after the coalition was formed when people were sort of aware of you know tight votes and you know whipping became slightly higher up the public whipping was back in whipping was cool again (laughs) Um, but does it help that sort of having that 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 sort of distance that the audience can enjoy it for what it is as a drama and they can draw their own parallels rather than doing a a play about something that's live happening right now I think so and I would say that wouldn't I but I, I feel like not having that personal baggage and actually what I loved about Kieran's show was that he did bring a real personal touch to it which we all uh, have when it comes to Brexit in particular no I think that's true I mean there's a great tradition in particularly British theatre of making sense of the present by going back to the recent past and it just gives you it elevates your play whether you want it to or not to a kind of poetic metaphor in which the audience projects onto it the condition of the present without having to be there and I think it also helps in terms of it I don't know how you find it with with plays but with comedy having that distance it protects your show from the terror of events a couple of years ago well the last couple of years in fact what with the brexit result and then the surprise general election in 2017 i know a lot of comedians who had to very hurriedly respond to that and rewrite it and all of a sudden come up with a whole new take and i am not particularly fast working Um, (laughs) and it helps to have you know, many, many years worth of space between you and the subject matter. And you can really explore your own ideas and interpretations thoroughly, I would say, rather than arriving at something that is a an instinctive judgment. I mean, for some people, it is, you know, they are instinctive people and that's their strength, but not for me. Now, I know from personal experience, I've done the same thing. So for the first time last October, I did an hour of stand-up. Wow. Why? That's I agree. Such to do a it. long time to leap in. That was only in October. Quite a lot. If I did it again, which I'm supposed to be doing in a couple of months, quite a lot of it is going to have to go in the bin just because the people have changed and yep. the themes have changed. I mean, actually, what was also quite nice is a couple of people I picked on it, like Andrew Bridget. I feel like he's becoming even bigger. Or Chris Grayley. Mm. You know, they, they're constantly building their capacity <laughs> for um, humour. But yeah, I basically learned my lesson. I should have done a historical piece. Uh, Nikki, there was a really interesting story around in the papers this week about the idea that Whitehall loses its historical mm. knowledge. Yeah. And there was somebody was floating the idea of having a sort of chief historical advisor who presumably would walk around government departments <laughs> going, well, of course, this isn't you. <laughs> Doesn't Ken Clark do that anyway? <laughs> <laughs> With a particular slant. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's really interesting. Everyone's talked for a long time about how quickly civil servants churn. And they've got careers to pursue. And actually, you often benefit from the fact that they've moved on every two years and they're bringing that experience with them. But um, you do lose that sort of institutional... 
institutional knowledge. One of the great things is in the WIPS office, actually, that the officials that have been there have been there for decades. And um, one of them would often say that, you know, uh, you know the, the principal private secretary would say, you know, I work 51% for the government and 49% for the opposition, because he would then take over when the government, when the opposition party becomes the government, he would be doing the same role. And so the WIPS office is a fascinating place, actually, of continuity and sharing that knowledge. Um, I fear that a historian probably, unless they had these wonderful archives, which were digitized, which seems very unlikely <laughs> that we would get it right, um, uh, would be would be struggling to recall everything that they need. But yeah, we could really do with more knowledge. And actually, I, I remember when this house was on, I mean, I think everyone who works in Westminster, whether journalist or politician, or whatever, went to see it at some point. And because of the febrile time of the coalition and all that, I think people went and saw it and went, oh, right, this isn't new. We're right back there now, actually more so than in the coalition, because the coalition was surprisingly stable and it had a decent majority. Whereas now, at the moment, every vote trying to get through Parliament is a bit of a nightmare. And actually, there's a danger that we think that this we're living in a uniquely difficult time. And actually people in the 70s would have thought the same thing. I saw the play and, and loved it. And one of the things about going into number 10 as well is you realise it's a bit like a stage set because there aren't many um, offices where you can meet. So you have basically, you know, chief whip, exit stage right, advisor comes on to, into the room, <laughs> you know, has a little bit of a chat and then disappears. And you have do you these do very... lots of Aaron Sorkin walking and talking? <laughs> <laughs> like all those crappy characters in mice scuttling across yeah. your feet. Yeah. Um, so you get that sort of drama going on, and you and when you're in there, also there are those moments where you go, "My God, you know, we are at the heart of this, and the quality of our thinking right now will shape it." Does that atmosphere start to affect people? Does, do people feel that they have to live up to it and behave in a sort of theatrical, conspiratorial way because of where they are and because of the environment, or is it? Does it remain quite work a day and quite? professional I think quite work a day and one okay. of the lovely comments show. I had yeah, well, in, in a weird way it becomes normal and you, mm. you know, you get, you know, you're just used to this level of access information and, and what's happening and the ability to influence um, I think one of the interesting things is though it is like a, you know you have workplace dynamics people that you get on well with people that you're trying to find information out with um, so it, it is just a workplace mm. I think just the, the content is, is um, what you're dealing with is so intense yeah. I think that's always worried me about the idea of working in number 10 is I'd always want to think there was like some other grown-ups in the other room who were actually do, do you know what I mean there's a sort of yeah. you are literally doing it there is no the buck stops here. yeah yes yeah. And, and I um you know I think like anyone walking through the door the first time um, you know I looked around and my in my first few months actually I, there was a little bit of you know um wondering uh, looking up to everyone and going oh, they're the the real players and I made the sort of mistake of thinking oh you know they're the established team and then realizing after a little while one second you know Gavin Robbie everyone's only been here a month and a half <laughs> ahead of me um, and you start to get familiar with what you're doing. Right, uh, let's move on to more present-day Brexit dramas. And uh, this is James Graham. Uh, well, so the joy of drama for me, uh, unlike Brexit, is that it actually ends. Uh, and I feel that's important because it allows for that ancient Greek necessity of catharsis, whereby you can contain something with a, in a frame and actually look at it. And a nation can look back at a trauma and understand it and learn from it and laugh at it and grieve. And I think that's what this national anxiety feels like we're unable to contain something in order to understand it because it just never ends. Well, it's the same, James, watching your show on Channel 4, I couldn't, far from catharsis, it just took me back to how horrible covering I'm the Brexit <laughs> was. And, but because it was, it, it really did, it sort of captured, I don't know if it was because it, it looked a bit bleak at times, it sort of captured my memory <laughs> of the whole thing. Not not just because of the sort of relentlessness of the campaign and, and it was 
there were sort of two stories. There was the story of the campaign, but there was also the story of what was happening inside the campaigns and the, you know, the machinations of Bernard Jenkins versus Dominic Cummings and all mm. of that. That that seemed to occupy so much of my mind at one point. Uh, that's it. Uh, yeah, and I wondered how much of that occupied the nation's mind. I, I don't know whether normal people were at all concerned about the uh, factional divide between Dominic Cummings and Matthew Elliott. I've got no idea, and I doubt it. But for me, I'm a, I'm just like like I assume Kieran doesn't mind me calling him a geek. I'm just a massive dweeb for <laughs> um, for process. I don't know why, but the rituals of how you make a thing and our democratic systems, whether it's the whip's office and how you get a member of parliament who may be sad or may be drunk into the lobby to vote a certain way, I feel like by understanding that, somehow you get to then iris out the bigger stuff. So for me, understanding how you run a referendum campaign, where you hire the office from, how you organise the desks, what everyone's job is, do you order pizza late at night or do you go out to the pub? It, it's that stuff that in a weird kind of way actually magnifies to something more important. And also that is the bit most people who are you know voters on the receiving end of a campaign don't see and probably aren't yeah. that in the midst of it all if they're thinking about it at all they're thinking about how they're going to vote not where are people sitting in the office but actually when you stop and think about it launching something from scratch unlike a political party which exists all the yeah. time and has offices the bit where dominic cummings goes into this empty room and starts drawing on the wall with a felt pen you sort of think well that is it did have to start somewhere and that's the, that's sort of where it started yeah and I'd look referendums are really weird they they, they, <laughs> they, they they start from scratch and then they end immediately and the people who run them aren't the people who then have to enact the yeah. decision and I, I do think that's a problem and I, I'm not blaming the people involved because they they on either side they felt very passionately about the thing they were campaigning for but the fact is that the people who presented a vision for what post referendum would be are no, are no longer in the public eye and are off doing different jobs and I think that's that's a problem and if we do it again and who knows? It looks increasingly likely that we might have to all go through that again. Then I think there's something just there's just something intrinsically um, problematic about that. So, how did you approach what you were going to include and not include? And the start and the starting point, I suppose, was quite clear because it was at the point where vote leave was set up and then the result but who do you decide to include and not and most notably David Cameron for instance wasn't featured the arrival of this film I was away caused quite a bit of controversy and a lot of emotion um, which was channeled through to me via Twitter and I totally get why because people obviously feel very strongly about this and I, I, I realised that nobody was going to get the Brexit film that they wanted in the individual nobody was going to get the Brexit that they wanted yeah, well exactly uh, so and, and, and what you include is obviously and people have different views about whether I was right or wrong to include or not not include certain things. In fact, where I launched the film last night at, in uh, in Westminster, um, I I spoke. I was stood at a podium launching it, and I went, "I'm sorry that some people aren't included." And for some reason, at that moment, my eyes fixed on Steve Baker, and I oh. realised that I thought, "Oh God, there was actually a draft where he was in it." And then I cut him, and I felt like apologising to him. So actually, even though you say uh, the the start of the film, it, it, obviously it should be when the Leave campaign was set up. Actually, seven drafts before that, it was David Cameron um, uh, deciding to call the referendum, and then I scrapped that, and I went through to George Osborne being really sad on the night of the referendum so actually the starting point was never clear to me but it became very obvious that I that Dominic Cummings as a, as a protagonist and all, all great dramas need a protagonist who is uh, often a disruptor often a transgressor often unpredictable and can say things that other characters can't say he felt like an, an ideal vehicle and a vessel for that and it, it's a tremendous USP as well to have the figure that no one knows as well yeah. you know because yeah. you that, that does give you a greater a greater license i suppose or, or a greater freedom to to place that character center stage i i suppose if if david cameron had been you know the, the one of the elemental forces in it that would have been would that have been more constraining for you 
A bit, yeah. Although what's weird, and maybe I just I'm I'm a, I'm a massive wuss when it comes to this kind of stuff. So when I meet people, if they're nice to me, I start to like them. So it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> That's how, why you write about people who are dead. <laughs> so it, doesn't, like. it doesn't matter what they've done, or if I disagree with them politically, if they pour me a cup of tea, I'm in awe of them. So um, so you do still feel that moral responsibility mm. to not misrepresent. Uh, anybody, um, whether it's Dominic Cummings or David Cameron, but you're right. What you what what um, I think what the joy of, of a writer, and I hope the joy for an audience, is that you come with so much baggage with David Cameron or Theresa May. Mm. Uh, you have an absolute clean slate when you're dramatising Craig Oliver, who ran the Remain campaign. And I think one of the things that really came through last night, and, and I loved it because I have to confess, when I heard that you were doing this, uh, and I was sitting at my desk <laughs> down the stairs from the PM's office, and I thought, my God, who's going to want to live? You know, living this is bad enough, blow by blow, to then relive it while we're still doing it. And yet the the humanity that you brought into it, you know, you made people really come to life as people. And I think in all the drama of what's going on at the moment, sometimes we lose sight of people and we get very, um, you know, pejorative about them. And I thought it was just a, a beautifully crafted pen portraits of all the people involved. I thought it was wonderful. Oh, well, I'm glad. Thank you. And I, 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 I will also take any criticism that people have because I think that, I think what I genuinely, I have a romantic view of drama and plays and films uh, about politics, which is that it should create what, what the online environment doesn't create, which is a, a public square and a common shared space to agree and disagree about things. Um, but I think, I mean, I'm a great admirer and love of satire uh, and comedy, but that is the tradition into which most of our political reference mm. points come now culturally. And, you know, the thick of it is a work of genius and I absolutely adore it. But there is an accidental danger, I think, in the British tradition. And I'm not saying this about Kieran because he's a comedian at all. <laughs> but there is a danger in the British condition about dehumanising politicians accidentally, whether it's through spitting image or through the thick of it. And I've had a constant debate with TV broadcasters about whether or not it's possible to do a British West Wing. And the consensus is, generally speaking, no, because there is absolutely no way in this country we would tolerate uh, a prime minister like that president who we can hear her worship. We just, won't, we just wouldn't tolerate it. And we don't instinctively believe, unlike CJ Craig, that there is someone in politics who is in, in it for the right reasons. And I disagree with that fundamentally. I believe most politicians are in it for the right reasons. And I want to, unfashionably sometimes in theatre circles, to try and portray people across all parties uh, as cool. fundamentally flawed, good people. And maybe that's unfair, maybe that's true, but I, I suspect that TV commissioners are wary of it and I don't know why. We don't like too much hope. We don't like hope, <laughs> we don't believe it. But actually it comes to, to my original uh, point, the, the joy of the, uh, for example, American political system is that it does end. I mean, you can, after eight years, it is possible to leave and people like you. If you're leaving in British politics, it's because you've messed up and you're out. Nobody, it's, 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 nobody gets to leave on their, on their own terms. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and some, I guess, well, maybe Harold Wilson and or Tony Blair, the closest we have to that. But even that didn't. So if you're leaving, it's because something's gone wrong. So as a, as, a, as a British people, we are always predetermined by our system to be let down. Was it Enoch Powell said that all political careers end in failure? Yes. So. Are you going to do your Enoch Powell impression? Now? No, I, I won't Come inflict on. that on. <laughs> <laughs> but also it's very good. Uh, again, no one to compare it to. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that really struck me, James, watching it was, although it was ostensibly about the vote leave campaign and Dominic mm. Cummings, he felt like he felt like it was that's what it was about, and how they won. The thing that really came across was how much Remain lost that they they just sort of lost control and the campaign wasn't very. And it reminded me how bad their campaign was. I mean, I can't even really remember what their slogan 
No, was. I had to look it up. And Please, it was really just long. Leave it alone. It was really <laughs> long and better, better off, safer. And I think it was. Look, it's not perfect, but it's okay. And just do keep stronger, the same but and stronger and healthier and happier. Or uh, Britain stronger in Europe. And I don't remember. What, yeah, healthier and more secure. I don't remember. More sec- but, yeah, yeah. But that's what I mean. Was yeah. take back control that was such a powerful argument. But what, what was your sense? of what Dominic Cummings was really like because I think Westminster the lobby there's a big division about the view of Dominic Cummings yeah. is, he a, is he a genius or is he full of I think the Craig Oliver character described full of pseudo intellectual bullshit what side do you come down on? I mean actually sometimes the side that people come down is whether or not he answered their calls and if he, yeah, if he answered right. their calls then he was clearly a genius <laughs> and if he wasn't uh, yeah. he was just Full of nonsense. Well, I, I hope that's the question that the drama asks and that we don't come down on it either way. Yeah. I mean, some of the people who really, really don't uh, like him or, or enjoy the legacy that he's, he's left on the country um, were very anti-Benedict Cumberbatch playing him because of the natural default of all that Sherlockian associations you, you have with him. And, and the, I think Benedict's performance, uh, I'm biased, but I think most people in the reviews have agreed that it, because he's so good, he, he naturally becomes a bit of a, a hero. Uh, I don't know. I've got no idea. I mean, I've met him and I, I, I confess to being impressed by him. But again, that's just because he opened the door and gave me a cup of tea. <laughs> Hello. And Hello was yeah, nice yeah. to me. And um, I, I, I think but your main point about that particular slogan, which I think encapsulated that yeah. campaign, um, whether it was an accident or by design, I think it was genius. I yeah. hated it when I first saw it because of its crudity and simplicity. But then I realised the, the genius of it and I wanted to understand the intellectual, philosophical origins of it because even though it looks quite obvious and quite easy and, you know, that word back has been used throughout history and then was used by Donald Trump. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it, it's a go-to for um, nostalgia. Um, I, I thought it was. It, it allowed an empty box for every single person in the country yeah. to pour their own specific anger into it and blame this uh, this enemy for it. Uh, and, you know, there were just there was justifiable anger in the country, and there were lots of things going wrong, and that's why people people voted the way they did. I mean, I also with the Remain campaign, I I was also very impressed by those guys. I mean, I think Craig Oliver is a really impressive person. I just think they were almost tricked into a referendum they in, in a different with different rules they called a referendum in one country and that it was voted for in a different one yeah. they didn't realize that the leave campaign had been running for about 40 years <laughs> yeah. they thought it was going to start when the starting pistol on the referendum campaign began and it wasn't so for example the absolute horror and we tried to capture this in a conference call with Craig Oliver and, and Peter Mamerson and David Cameron they were there was so many conversations about how do we tackle this at the immigration and the fact is as Craig Oliver said we can't because we don't have an answer we just don't have it yeah. if people are saying there's too much immigration we, we, we don't have an answer to that and there's there was no language ever established across t- a couple of decades to talk about the positives of immigration and you can't start that two three weeks before a vote so i sort of sympathize with them but i fully accept that they just didn't have uh, a pithy articulation of, the, of their message in the way that leave did Last two questions before we move on. One's a very simple one. Why is the MP questioning Dominic Cummings American? Okay, so she's Canadian, right? Uh, but uh, and uh, well, she she uh, it's meant it's an imagined future inquiry, yeah. uh, where Elizabeth Denham or somebody who looks and sounds a bit like Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, uh, has finally got Dominic Cummings to come to an inquiry and is is asking him about the impacts of data. Very good. Uh, just because I saw there were lots of people sort of tweeting and yeah. all that sort of thing, so I yeah. thought I should ask that question. And secondly, at the end, where there's a conversation, the imagined drink that Craig Oliver and Dominic Cummings go and have mm-hmm. in a pub, the Craig Oliver character, he basically asks Dominic Cummings, do you worry about what we've let out of the box here? That this is the process of going through this is deeply divisive campaign mm-hmm. and where this is all going. Was that sort of you verbalising your concern? 
I guess, yeah. I think that was the bit where the author talks about what he thinks his own film is about yeah. for a pint in a pub. <laughs> it's a classic scene uh, in all films. And yes, for me, the issues that I want to talk about, the reason why I think it was important to do a drama about this is not because it was about whether Leave was right or wrong. It's not about whether we were right to leave the European Union or not. People will have their own position on that, and I don't presume to be able to lecture anybody. I do think the most important thing we have to talk about is the poor quality of our political discourse and the dangerous nature in which which it's now conducted, particularly on on platforms which don't uh, encourage or foster empathy. Um, I love love this, what we're doing right now around a table having a civil conversation with people who may agree or disagree. That is not um, how I think our politics feels like. And you may say to us ever thus, it was always divisive. Our House of Commons is divided architecturally along oppositional lines. It's meant to be an argument. But I do think it doesn't. You you look back at the 1970s, like Kieran, and you. I spend a lifetime on YouTube watching the people talk, the way that Margaret Thatcher spoke, the way that Roy Jenkins spoke, the way that Harold Wilson spoke, and they embraced they embraced complexity and nuance and uh, and 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 difficult concepts. And it wasn't. We didn't resort to these simple talking points. And I miss it. And maybe I'm being romantic. No, no, you're not. I I completely agree. And it's one of the things. There's a wonderful set piece program from the 75 referendum campaign that I love watching which is um, you know it was it was the big red on red debate of Ben versus Jenkins and they're given an hour and Dimbleby is supposedly there to mediate he barely says anything because they they're just going at it quite civilly he gets a little heated but as you say they're given the time and the room to to develop complex ideas and and to explore the underpinning of 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 how they have reached a position it's not well mm. thank you for the two minutes uh, that you've given us this morning during most of which i was trying to interrupt you the whole time yeah um, and actually what i miss and and i think again the problem with a referendum is it forces you into false tribes where you have then have to like a religion fundamentally commit to all, commit to all its tenets i miss uncertainty mm. I, I love my uncertainty i wish all political interviews began with god so this is difficult isn't it? And everyone goes, yeah, it is. I don't really, I don't really know. But I mean, I would suggest this. But oh, that's interesting. That maybe, I mean, nobody knows. Why do we pretend that we know? We don't know. And this is really hard. And I think drama exists to live in the grey. And I, and and everybody sort of go, this is really bloody hard, isn't it? Nikki, just before we move on, we've seen the outcome of all of that most recently with the Anna Subri yes. abuse she's been getting outside mm. Parliament, which is extraordinary. Yeah. I passed over the road just I think it was sort of kicking off. I mean, I'm all for people standing outside Parliament and protesting. That's the whole point of a democracy. But that what we, we saw with Anna Subri is different, isn't it? Yes. And I, I think, you know, it, it's... Um, my, my sister is an, an English professor and she says, you know, there's a great desire for us to make the opposition other, to dehumanise them, to put onto them everything that we don't want. And then that in some way permits behaviours which we would never dream of if we really were to engage with them as an individual. You know, over the last 15 months, you know, I I was, you know, fighting in inverted commas uh, with the Dominic Grieve et al group on the meaningful vote amendments through the withdrawal bill. So Anna Zubri was definitely on the other side to what I was trying to do. And yet, you know, throughout that, you see them up close and personal. And I really feel that, you know, nobody should be experiencing that kind of barracking and that kind of behaviour. And it, it's up for us all to say to our friends or anyone when we see that kind of behaviour, that's enough, that's that's not on. And it does sound like the Met Police might take a slightly different approach yeah. to standing across the road, um, which for the, one of the most protected buildings in Parliament, you <laughs> thought they could have come to a aid. Anyway, um, in just a sec, we'll talk about what's happening in Brexit right now. We'll be back after this short break. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, joined in the studio by Kieran Hodgson, James Graham, and this is Nikki DaCosta. Inside Westminster, everyone's really pretty exhausted. I imagine that's the same for you, Matt. Emotionally, there's not been much respite over Christmas. When we think about, you know, I, I'm what's going to happen next, there are limited new twists and turns. You know, you, you've probably got a proper no-confidence vote attempt by Labour. You'll have some concern about, you know, where are they going to go on a second referendum? How does the PM really rate uh, no deal? Those are the uncertainties. Outside the bubble, I think in terms of this, this motif of a drama, it's going to be that series that everyone really watched the first season of, uh, now only kind of dip in and out of. Uh, they're shouting things at the TV. There are real expressions of frustration because this is about real lives. Um, but they're really desperate for that final episode and a firm conclusion. Aren't we all, Nikki? Aren't we all? <laughs> um, now, first of all, let's start with what your old job. What is a director of legislative affairs? So I had the, um, I actually was the first post holder. Yeah. Um, it was created on the Canadian model. Uh, there's a Canadian director of legislative affairs who actually I had the pleasure of meeting as my opposite number. And the, it came about, it'd been around for a while. It was a brainchild of Jeremy Hayward. Um, and I always used to joke, lots of people had claimed it as their idea. And as long <laughs> as it was a success, they'd continue to, to claim it. Uh, and the idea was n- number 10 has never been very good about knowing about parliament, to be frank, fairly dismissive. And there's an apocryphal story that at one stage during the Cameron era, a phone call was made to the whip's office saying, can we pass a bill in one day with no votes? Um, and so when people were confronted with the numbers, they said, we need somebody in number 10. Uh, a couple of people could be considered uh, who have that sort of experience in the whip's office. Ten years previous, I'd been in the opposition whip's office. Um, and I sort of made my career out of focusing on how do you look at legislation. And so I came in and I had a number of aspects to my job description. Uh, one of, you know, to make sure that Parliament was always in the room in terms of policy decisions, to contextualise, and this causes some conflicts, to contextualise the advice of the business managers. Dear old Chief Whip and I uh, had some interesting moments. Um, and to <laughs> uh, to deliver the Brexit legislative programme as well as the domestic legislative programme and to make sure everything was moving forward. It was a privilege to do such a role. And it was born out of the fact that the Prime Minister called a general election hoping to end up with a whopping majority, which would mean that all of this would sell through easy peasy and instead didn't. And so suddenly the 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 machine the government machine wasn't set up to cope with not having a majority. Yes. And also because things move so fast in terms of legislation and you need to be thinking about not just about what you do in a particular policy area on a particular bill, but how does that affect what you're trying to do on Brexit or the position of the Prime Minister. So you need to put everything every little piece needs to be thought about at the same time. And presumably the other problem with Brexit is in normal times, if you had a minority government, you just wouldn't 
do very much and you could take longer about doing it and be more <laughs> consultative. But Brexit has, is happening and there is a sort of, there's a clock ticking on it. So there's a sense of urgency which might not necessarily be there with that. Yes, I mean, there's a slight uh, I, I question mark raises as you say that, because I would say that at any time, a government has to be shown to govern, and it needs to be moving forwards its programme. Yeah. And when you have long delays, and we've seen that in the media commentary, when bills have been held back, yeah. then question start marks start to be raised as to how in control you are. So I think anyone has to make progress. But yes, particularly that ex that you know, 29th of March was the pressure. And there are royal assent, what we call royal assent drop dead dates, when do you need to get the bill through in order to make sure that you're legislatively safe. And so why did you then leave last November? Oh, I think, um, and I think I made it quite clear on the Today programme, I probably said all I ever intend to say um, in in resigning. Um, you know, uh, it was a privilege to serve the Prime Minister and it was a team that I feel very proudly about. But that sort of conversation was very much on the inside. Uh, suffice to say that, you know, I, I came in. It was really important that whoever was delivering the bill, if this vote comes through and then there's the bill, the withdrawal agreement bill, uh, you need somebody that can give 100% to the job and that person wasn't going to be me. So is it right to say that it was because you didn't like the plan rather than the process of getting the plan through? Oh, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm always up for a fight and, and very much in, enjoyed my role and, and would have um, uh, given it everything I could. But that's probably all I'm ever going to say on that, Matt. Can I just say, like, I've listened to, like, interviews between a journalist and a sort of political person for years. But now I'm here. So I'm like, what do you want? There was a question, there was an answer that wasn't maybe the answer that the question wanted. It was very civil, um, but it was just thrilling. Can I just say? So let's move on to what happens next then. What are the, the, the big sort of plot points between now and March 29th to extend this drama metaphor? So there's going to be little bits which are going to be little skirmishes. We've got a little skirmish on the finance bill about trying allegedly to stop no deal. To, to be frank, it, it stops a particular power, which I don't think is particularly important. It's going to really kick off on Wednesday. You've got this uh, when they start start this debate again, and then you've got the vote. I think you're going to see some interesting moments where Parliament tries to remove the government's control to pull the vote again, to potentially uh, reduce their ability to keep on coming back to Parliament. Maybe they'll try and give an interpretation on uh, this issue of same question, same session and say, no, you know, you know if, it's, if it's the same thing. Then you've got the vote itself. It won't go through. I, I mean, I just I don't know any way that it can go through right now unless the EU really uh, comes up with something now. But you might see an amendment on that, which says, EU, if you do this, if you follow this formula and you give us this and you, if you are really committed to not exiting with no deal, then we know we've got a majority and we can get it through. And so if then the EU was to respond, we would then have another vote um, and then we would introduce the withdrawal agreement bill. And that's not going to be plain sailing. There'll be lots of vulnerabilities to that bill. And those things that people have already commented on in the public domain are things like, for example, making that financial settlement uh, conditional uh, on getting that future relationship. So there'll be lots of little skirmishes happening in really tight amounts of time. Uh, and that's going to get it's going to get messy on that. Alternatively, if the deal doesn't go through, then you're on a pathway to no deal. And then you'll see attempts, you'd probably see the no confidence motion by Labour, uh, which is probably unlikely to be successful. And then you'd see various other efforts. And it'll be very much, I think, focusing in on that fixed term Parliament Act and what can you do within that. And there's already been talk of cancelling the February half term working weekends yep. is that is that a real thing let's let's take a deal scenario because it's yeah. easier than talking about lots of different yeah. ones uh, so if you 
take the withdrawal agreement bill is a pretty serious piece of legislation. When you took the EU withdrawal act through, it took about 37 days for the Lords and Commons in terms of sitting time. I think as of the 21st of January, you got 36. And that is allowing for a half term for the MPs, but probably not for the peers. So I think if you want to give yourself a little bit of a wiggle room, I'd probably cancel that February recess. It'd be a lot of very disappointed ski. Ski, but that, that is the problem for, for a is. certain type of particularly Tory MP. That's yeah. that's peak ski yeah. ski time. And and one of the things that officials are always really puzzled by, because we always use it to work on a, a principle that you don't want to really put a vote on a Thursday uh, or you know risk going into recess dates because people would have holidays. And they'd say, oh, but surely they'll turn up because this is really important. And it's like, mm, never quite be certain if you schedule <laughs> something. You know, got a dinner. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you don't want to introduce whipping uncertainty. What is the number 10 view of what happens if we run out of time? Are we down to Chris Grayling's ferryless ferries and lorries and panic? When is the point to start panicking? When should we start stockpiling? I think, you know, um, first of all, you know, I've, you know, I've been out since mid-November, yeah. so I, I am not up to date on, on the number 10's thinking. Um, what I would say is that, you know, there was a very interesting piece. I think it was by a civil servant in The Telegraph uh, anonymously saying, you know, look, the civil service, it is very DNA, uh, will make sure that we're prepared. So, you know, the work is underway and is going on. And, and I think, you know, wh- whether you can get a really accurate statement of how things are is quite difficult. I, I'm afraid I can't give you a current update on number 10's thinking. Does this reassure you, chaps, that it's all going to be all right? It does, because it's spoken with such intelligence and eloquence. Yeah. But, I, but um, I mean, I know someone who works in government who said, buy a tin opener, so that really worried me. <laughs> <laughs> and actually he said, buy two, just in case. I mean, I, 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 have, a, I, have, a, a very, I have a really crap TV drama idea where the civil service um, at some point revolts against... Um, the democratic will of the people. Uh, uh, Haven't um, they always? <laughs> so Humphrey, it's. Uh, but I, I, at what point? I mean, obviously, some people think that No Deal is what people voted for, and that's the best course of Britain. Not a lot of people agree. It's kind of an odd spectacle to witness and watch um, a whole system and a whole service actively do something they think is going to make the country worse, or at least damage in the short or medium term the economic and social health of the nation. Uh, and at what point, if that's what you believe? Does it become like emotionally problematic if you're working in the heart of government? I was, I was, I was thinking about it, and, and it's not really answering the, the question, which is not <laughs> because I'm being political. Um, the thing that came to mind immediately was about the sheer dedication I saw from civil servants. And it was very interesting. I, I never thought about joining the civil service. It was always very grey. But <laughs> the people I came across in the civil service were phenomenal in their dedication, in the hours that they spent, in their thinking, in their willingness to engage. And I think what I saw, far from the Sir Humphrey aspect, was about this is what has been voted on. This is the policy of the government. How do we deliver it? And that was where all the energy went. And to be frank, you would drive yourself nuts if you were constantly allowing yourself, you know, as, as, as spads, we have that indulgence of having been able to have a political view on it and letting that guide us. But that's not a luxury available to the civil service. So mm. I, I actually don't think that that comes up so much. I um, suppose that as a dramatist, mm. that's what really interests me, because I agree, mm. everyone I've ever met who works in the civil service has an incredible sense of public duty. Yeah. And if I was writing a character of it, that's the meat of it. How do you balance that? with your own ideology or your own emotional instincts. In some way, might it not be liberating not to have an ideology? <laughs> yes. no, to, just, to just go to be a, you know, to be a, a, a Javert, a servant mm. of duty alone. 
and that is that's the only thing that guides you and I mean it would save you a lot of Jeffrey thinking and worrying time a, church, uh, a bridge the officials actually in a private office when I first went in I hated it as a phrase but they, there's a civil service phrase which is we are where we are and they often say that you know when people are just about to start mm. a bit of conflict in a conversation they go no we are where we are moving on you know uh, you've leaked that we are where we are <laughs> moving on and and I think that's that, that aspect just picking right. up exactly what you describe okay. we are where we are is a phrase that should dominate Westminster generally right now well yeah. like yeah well I wouldn't have started from here and if only we'd done this but like well right well, we are where we are the showbiz equivalent is um, it is what it is it's <laughs> <laughs> code for it's terrible it's terrible yeah. but we've got to fill an yeah. hour well it'd be interesting to see how it all pans out do you think in, in 40 years time you'll be doing a show about what's happening in politics right now yes anyway? but it has to be 40 years that has, has to be, to be has to be the distance so people have forgotten what uh, Vince Cable sounded like so you can exactly. do him in uh, safety will you ever go back to doing Brexit again Joe? I don't think I'll have a choice because everything, even if it's even if it's not literally about the campaign or the Brexit process, it, it, this is the condition of the nation now, um, and it will infect and be in the DNA. I think of every play, film, and, and television drama that you see for the next fifty years. I'm sorry to say. Mm-hmm. Well, on that cheery note, uh, thank you very much for that. That's all we've got time for this week. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And for details of the Times and Sunday Times style, go to thetimes.co.uk/slash. Subscribe. But for now, from Kieran Hodson, James Graham, Nikki DaCosta, and me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.